say, Maggie, uh, can I ask you a personal question? Yes, Paul. Well, how does it feel to be 30? I, well, almost 30. That feels good. It feels really good, Ed. I, I, I feel more confident, at ease with myself. Of course, you know, I wish I'd known at your age what I know now, but better late than never, right? Right. You know, Ed, I feel like I'm at a real point of growth, of transition, like I'm really opening up to what's inside. That's why your passage ritual is so perfect, because it's a way for me to unburden myself of everything that's been festering in my guts, you know? A way for me to expel it into the universe like a big pot boil. Yeah. Next time you see me, I'll be a different person. I'll, I'll be... Well, you'll be 30. Yeah. Maggie O'Connell is almost 30 years old. And can I just say really quick about the soundbite here? The music in this clip is just... Oh, it's so good how it like blends into Maggie's theme with the triangle and just the you know the characteristic melody. Oh my god, I know it, it, it's an extension of her theme. Like yeah. they built up on it for season four. They were like, all right, you know what? We're just gonna we're gonna introduce just completely new introduction to this theme, and let's just have it play at a pivotal moment. Yeah, I really like the liberties taken here, like sort of you know expanding. This music, because, you know, this is the song that always, this this melody always plays. And sometimes it's on, like, different instruments, but it's usually that triangle, that piano. But here it's really evolved in a lot of ways, I guess, uh, just as Maggie is evolving. Yeah, she feels like she's more confident. She's more outgoing at 30. And I don't know if I share her sentiment. Like, I just had my birthday this month, <laughs> and I, I'm turning closer toward 30 as well, and... I mean, I feel like I'm yeah, more confused than what I was at when I was in the beginning of my 20s. Yeah. But now that I'm at my twilight years of my 20s, I, I definitely feel a little bit more uh, out of body. There's definitely an anxiety about it, you know, and this this episode really focuses on we get to kind of live through Maggie, but you're right, Charles, we're like almost 30 ourselves so this is kind of the pivotal, the show Northern Exposure is 30, like everything, it's all coming together right now in this moment in time, Charles. <laughs> it's perfect. Oh, uh, actually, I wanted to point out too that the actress uh, that plays Maggie, Janine uh, Turner, was also about to turn 30. Uh, I think she would be turning 30 in December. You know, this, this episode aired September 28th, 1992. So later that year, she would be turning 30. Ooh, method acting, getting that uh, real life experience into the acting right there. <laughs> yeah, I think the uh, probably the writers, you know, were you know kind of uh, figured that and tried to write an episode about it. It's a good, um, I don't know, like st- beginning a new chapter, beginning a new. What what are we talking about here? Northern Exposure, the '90s uh, TV series, is on its fourth season, and our podcast, the Northern Overexposure podcast, uh, hosted by me, Lee, and. Charles here. Yep. Uh, this is our fourth season. We made it. Oh, my God. We're on our fourth <laughs> season right here. How does it feel? It, it's it been over a year, right, yeah. since we've been doing this? Yeah, no, no, no. It's definitely been over a year since we started doing it because season one and two were so short that we right. were able to pack in three seasons in one year. And in a lot of ways, I feel like, you know, we're, we're starting to get the hang of this, I, I want to say. Yeah. I feel good about it. I feel like we're, <laughs> we've learned a lot since, uh, since the, our pilot episode. <laughs> I'll never forget this review that we got on our pilot episode. It was one of our early reviews, too. I think it might have been the second one. 
and it said, I can't believe these guys are so unprofessional that one of them got up to go use the restroom at the middle of the podcast. They didn't even edit it, just kept it in there. That was me. I'll take the, I'll fall on the sword there. But yeah, I mean, at this point in time, if I had to go to the bathroom, would I just edit that out? No, I probably would just, <laughs> probably just keep it in. <laughs> I, no, what ha- what what did happen? I I got up for the bathroom and you just had to kind of like fill fill the airtime. Yeah, yeah, no, no, there was like uh, three minutes where I was just going on and I was just like looking okay. like as yeah. if uh, it was one of those situations where your parents go up to be like, "Hang on, I forgot to go get the milk," and you're like, "Man in the station at the checkout counter," and then it gets closer and closer, <laughs> and then suddenly the cashier starts like putting the items on a conveyor belt, and you're just like, "I don't have yeah, any." Yeah, especially. That was like your first time watching an episode, so you're like, uh, I guess I'll make something up to talk about. No, actually, yeah, uh, thinking about it, I pro- I most certainly have edited out stuff like that when we need to take pauses. So we're a lot better at sort of like shaping our program, but um, yeah. So anyway, we wanted to thank you for listening to another season of Northern Overexposure Podcast, and this season, we have something new. We have a Patreon page. That's right. We've launched a Patreon page. So once a month, we're going to be posting an exclusive bonus episode, uh, sort of like in the same universe of Northern Exposure. Like, for instance, our first episode that we've got up right now is about a film called Maze from the year 2000. It's Rob Morrow's directorial debut. He directed and starred in this movie, and we're talking about it (laughs) on the Patreon. Yeah, so we just wanted to create some new content on anything that was related to the Northern Exposure cinematic universe, (laughs) anything that was tangentially related. We wanted to create more of that stuff uh, because we felt like there's a whole lot of that just to dig into and about like really just any topics that are also related to Northern Exposure, about being like that fish out of water or learning new experiences while putting a philosophical spin on it. Yeah, there's definitely a lot that applies or a lot that you could, there's sort of like a, a philosophy into Northern Exposure in a way that can apply to a lot of different things. So I think we'll, we'll really be branching out uh, with these bonus episodes. Also, get this, for every Patreon supporter, we're going to mail you a vintage postcard custom designed by Laser Kitties, who did the podcast artwork of us. Yeah, we'll write you like a little postcard in the mail, you know, a little a message from us, maybe a favorite quote from an episode or a doodle of like a favorite still shot from the show. I love postcards. When, when was the last time you actually got one? Uh, Charles, actually, didn't I send you a postcard on the road? It was about a dream I had of Northern Exposure, right? Yes, yes, that was the last time I got a postcard. What? I don't know when the last time I got a postcard was, but what was, do you remember what the dream was? I, uh, well, it was your dream, first of <laughs> right. all. Right. I was trying dream. to describe it to you. <laughs> it was like a lost episode of Northern Exposure that I dreamt. Oh, that was it. Yeah, you're right. But anyway, for every <laughs> subscriber to Patreon, we're going to mail you these postcards. So, Please subscribe and support us. Yeah, maybe I'll mail you my uh, my Northern Exposure dreams if I have any more. <laughs> well, Charles, today we're talking about Season 4, Episode 1 of Northern Exposure. It's called Northwest Passages. Holy crap, I'm an idiot. I, I didn't know that was the title <laughs> of the episode. Really? That is a really interesting title, though. Why <laughs> Northwest Passages. Yeah, I'm actually only just thinking about it now. What could that mean in relation to this episode? Well, uh, it was the last uncharted territory of North America, wasn't it? I believe so. 
So maybe there, that, that, that could play into something. So let's go and let's do the thing that we traditionally do, which is overanalyze <laughs> something all the way to the point of like over scrutiny. But if it could be like the final frontier, just like Alaska is, of your adult life. Like, so usually you have like this weird period where it's post-college, where you're like 22, 23 years old. And that phase kind of lasts into like your late 20s. But then after that, you're supposedly in your quote-unquote adult years at that point. Like you're supposed to be set. Gotcha. So maybe that could be it. Like this is it. This is the last part of yourself that you have to discover. Just like we discovered America. These are the last portions. This is the last part of you to discover. Yeah. And the and the word passage, you know, that also signifies like, you know, having to come through something or go through something, uh, you know, a sort of evolution, which I, I think Maggie really goes through um, in some small way, like, uh, you know, some changes in this episode. Yeah, no, 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 I agree. That's a really good way to analyze the word passage. I wasn't looking into it that way. So this episode begins with Chris and Maggie walking down like a path, like like this beautiful nature. There's like flowers on either side. It's a very long lens, like telephoto shot as they're approaching us. And yeah, Maggie's in a great mood. I like this exchange in the beginning. Uh, Chris says, you're in a good mood. And Maggie says, you know why? And Chris says, um, you had a good breakfast. You know, it's just funny. But no, it turns out Maggie is turning 30. Yeah, it turns out she's really happy about leaving the past behind, trying to get a new future ahead of her. And, you know, it's not really explained why they're even in that, uh, like in that forested area. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, they're just, they're just, I guess they just found like a beautiful location to shoot at and thought, hey, let's shoot it here. Uh, I don't really know what they're doing. I think they're just having one of their morning walks, I guess. So in this scene, Chris talks about sort of the difference between the Western view of aging and the Eastern view, sort of like in America, we've got this morbid fear of aging, he says, versus uh, more like, you know, in other cultures, it's maybe more of a reverence, you know, with age comes experience and wisdom. Um, but, you know, even still, I don't, Chris is not very helpful in this scene for Maggie. Yeah, he's talking about it, but with a caveat where he's saying like, you got to have like best of both worlds almost. Like you got to be young but you got to have the wisdom of a really old person. Like you have to have achieved success at a young age. Yeah, he talks about how there's like certain percentages. Like if you're not going to, like if you don't become a millionaire by the time you're 30, it's just not going to happen. You know, at least 95% of the time, I think is the statistic he pulls. That is a, that <laughs> is a terrifying statistic. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, you know, what is, what is the quote? It's like 90% of statistics are made up or something. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Yeah, I think Abraham Lincoln said that. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't know how valid this is, but uh, but still, he's uh, he kind of acts like he's offering wisdom, maybe to um, comfort Maggie. But it's very clear she's she's very uncomfortable after this conversation. Like he's like, "Well, uh, I guess I'll see you later," and that's the end of it. Yeah, so that's definitely the A plot of the episode, which is Maggie's thirtieth birthday and her overcoming. You know, not quite being young, but not quite being old. Just kind of like getting to the next stage of life. Right. And uh, I think there's sort of like a, a really beautiful theme that ties a lot of this, at least like the beginning of this episode, before, the, before more plot lines start to develop. But very early on, there's that idea of, you know, this sort of milestone in Maggie's life. 
Um, but then there's also there's I mean, we'll get into this too because it becomes its own subplot. But Marilyn is studying the Alaska State Driver's Manual. She she's looking to get her driver's license. Um, and at the same time, Chris uh, is on the radio. Uh, and he's talking about milestones in the sense of like a title, like a piece of paper. For instance, Chris has just been certified. He has like the cert- certificate uh, that he is like a certified radio engineer now. He passed some test or something to get to get the certificate. So um, yeah, he, he kind of talks about like, you know, I, I like his quote, does a piece of paper make two people more married? Does a bar mitzvah make a child a man? So this whole theme of uh, milestones and you know, does a title really change anything? You know, does 30 really change your life? Um, I don't know. He doesn't, he doesn't offer an answer, but he, he raises the question. Yeah. He kind of muses on that. And I'd say like the paper means a before after like a type of qualification where you jump through the right hoops in order to earn the respect that you are deserved of said certification right there. (laughs) I, I am more inclined to say that the paper does mean something. I know a lot of the times whenever you get into an argument on these types of nature, someone will be like, well, what does that mean? It's just a piece of paper. It's like, <laughs> yeah, but like, look at the contents of the paper. Like, that's not, come on, man. It's not. Did you read we, the paper? We know it's paper. Read what it says. <laughs> <laughs> like, I jumped through the hoop. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Charles, actually. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it signifies, it's not so much, um, you know, you can just say a piece of paper is a piece of paper, but it was acquired because because of certain events, you know? So it's maybe the argument is that you can't just summarize a whole story with just uh, your certificate because, you know, your knowledge goes much further than just a simple piece of paper can explain. Uh, But it's there to say that, you know, you've reached this milestone, you've kind of reached this level of experience. Um, So it does mean something in a way. So we next see Maggie in Ruth's store and she's picking up some items for her birthday. I think some uh, cans of oyster... Yeah, smoked oysters, um, like artichoke hearts. Um, yeah, she's. I guess she's going to make like a nice birthday meal for herself. Yeah, I don't know what's wrong with ordering a pizza, but uh, <laughs> you do you, Maggie. And she also picks up her mail, which she actually has a lot of. I, I was surprised at the amount of birthday mail. That's true. I forgot. Like she, she does carry a, a kind of a stack of envelopes there, but but she opens one from an old friend. Um, I forget the name, but the card, you know, the outside of the card is like a little, you know, just imagine like a birthday card with like some cartoon on it. And, uh, it says, you're not getting older, dot, dot, dot. Then you open up the card and the inside says, you're already there. So, you know, Maggie gets, uh, in this card, it's like one of her friends who is already married and, you know, sends pictures of her kids. So, you know, there, there's that sort of burden on Maggie. Like, she's 30 and she doesn't have kids. She's not married. Will she be a spinster, I guess? You know, what what do you think is going on in Maggie's head? Yeah, I think that Ruth is also kind of piling on right there uh, about being older. Because she's saying, like, you know, it's okay if you don't have children. And Maggie's like, no, 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 no. I still have plenty of options. Like, I can do in vitro. I can adopt. And... Ruth is kind of humoring her. She's like, yeah, yeah, you can totally do those things. Yeah, so we get the sense that, you know, obviously in the very first scene of the episode, Maggie is embracing 30, like becoming 30. 
Um, and she's got a very positive attitude about it, which I think is great, but you can tell she has some anxieties, which will start to unravel throughout this episode. So this is, this is starting to pile on here. Uh, in the next scene with Maggie, she's uh, at the brick. Uh, she gets some beef stew. Shelly serves her a bowl of beef stew. And, um, you know, they're talking about the whole age thing. Holling says, 30 is a slice of pie. I like that. You know, of course, uh, <laughs> Shelly then comments that Holling's going to be 120 years old before he dies. So he's got the longevity. Of course, he, of course he would think it's a slice of pie. Um, Shelly mentions that she's, what did she say, staring down the barrel of 21. So I think the last time we checked in, Shelly was what, like 19 years old? I don't, I haven't followed the chronology well enough to actually know, like, how old is she in this moment? So I don't know if she's actually 20 and she's about to be 21 or if she is just uh, anticipating 21 because that's going to kind of be the next milestone for her. Yeah, I think it's anticipation toward 21 because I she's, don't think that much time has passed between season three and season four. Right. She's probably still, uh, you know, pro- probably not even 20 yet, but I, actually I'm not sure. Um, anyway, what happens in this scene at the brick? Yeah, it's at this scene that Ed introduces a new idea to Mackie about what his tribe does, which is that they write letters about their past, like to individuals of their past. And then they go to the river and they actually send the mail out into the river to have it be delivered to them. Yeah, it's like um, Maggie says something like she's, she's going to spend her birthday in contemplation, closing the past and opening the door to the future. And as you said, Ed explains that this is a tradition. Uh, for for his tribe, at least. Um, yeah, so they, they write letters to, I guess, people that are holding them back in their past, I think is what Ed says. And you send it down the river, and the river delivers the messages to these people, um, whether they be alive or dead. I, I guess in this case, as we'll see, Maggie has a lot of dead boyfriends, which is a canon for the show. So she's going to end up writing them all letters. Um what else happens? I think it's in this scene where Maurice says he made full colonel at 30. Like 30 was a great year, at least for Maurice. This whole episode, Maurice is like uh, writing a memoir uh, in a way. And actually, I have to say, like when he first approaches Chris with like the very first sentence of the memoir, it's not bad. Like he's a pretty good, I'd say he's got a pretty good uh, handle on on writing, but it seems to annoy people throughout the the rest of the episode. Yeah, I think that he lifted that from Lincoln's Gettysburg address, oh, yeah, right? Yeah, he he does like the whole like it's almost like he's doing four score, but he he uses some other measurement. But he says score. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying that you can't use score, but like anytime you say score in like <laughs> your your, your spe- it, it's Lincoln. Like no one yeah, else says that anymore. Especially if it's at the beginning, right? If it's like yeah, at the exactly. very top, you can't lead so with he, that, or it's yeah, just so going like, to evoke the Gettysburg address. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so before Maggie sets off into her 30th birthday camping trip, she actually goes to Joel for a physical, which initially I thought that scene was useless because I didn't think it was presenting any new information until later in the episode that it was actually a very pivotal scene. Yeah, because because in this uh, in the, in her physical, she's running just a slight temperature. You know, it's nothing to be alarmed about, but that's isn't is that what you're saying? It kind of sets up... You know, she's got some sort of like bug or it, I think it turns out yeah. to be like a bacterial infection, right? Uh, I thought it was her appendix that had to be removed. Yeah, that is true. Like, yeah, when they get there, um, she has an inflamed or appendicitis or something. 
But I think what it is is, uh, let's see. Later on, Joel says, uh, after running her blood tests, uh, they indicate that she has a severe bacterial infection or she could have one. So maybe that's what causes uh, a problem with the appendix. Or, uh, I'm not sure. Hmm. We need a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that you can't have your appendix when you go to Antarctica? Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, I think I heard about this because there's just really no, there's not really medical facilities. So if you had to, if you had to get your appendix removed or something. Yeah, that's basically it. Like there's no doctor in like a 500 mile radius. So you just have to have it removed just in case it can get inflamed and this exact scenario happens. Because like when you have that, when this happens, to, it's, is it called appendici- appendicitis? Is that what it's yeah, called? Yeah, yeah, appendicitis. So when that happens, like, uh, you can die. Like, but it's a very easy procedure to have it removed. Like, and you know it's happening. You're like, wow, my appendix hurts. Like, you, I, you'll know that you have I actually don't know. I'm so frightened of that. I, they yeah. say that it's really easy for you to know, but, like, <laughs> my stomach hurts, like, all the time sometimes. Like, and, I, I just wake up and be like, oh, my stomach hurts. And then it frightens me. It's like, is this appendicitis? Like, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, so I guess I guess the idea is that if it were to happen, it's a very simple procedure to have it removed. But because there are no doctors or there, you know, there's such a lack, it's just you're kind of in the middle of nowhere when you go down there. So uh, I guess it makes more sense. You should just get it removed before you go because if you're down there, it will kill you and it will be for just sort of the uh, – it could have been avoided, I suppose. Right, right. So before Maggie takes off, Ed comes to her place, which I kind of like. There hasn't been a lot of footage of her new place since her old place burned down, but it looks like this one's got like a little fence that yeah, is. Yeah, we're, we're the at the exterior, right? Yeah. Yeah, it looks really nice. And he hands her a map, really old school, and <laughs> just tells her, like, X marks the spot. Like, this is the place you got to go to. Yeah, he's prepared the map for her journey, which is nice, you know, like he's scouted out a place like this is going to be a nice, safe place for Maggie, you know, and I mean, having said that, like Maggie is a bit of an outdoors person, you know, there's an episode where she gets stranded with Joel, remember, uh, Oi Wilderness, and she's really sort of like, sort of the expert of the outdoors, I I guess, in that scenario, when it's just her and Joel, but even still, I guess Ed just wants her to have like a very relaxed uh, just like just a great camping site. So he found this uh, this nice spot by the river, marks it on a map. We get that glorious uh, soundbite that we played from the beginning. Uh, and I think it's great, just like the way the music evolves. I know we talked about this up front, but especially uh, the the writing too, I, I really enjoyed. It's um, inspiring, you know, it's, uh, it's empowering. I guess the one part of the, there's one line where she says she compares... Uh, expelling your past, like um, like popping a boil or something, you know, that's mm-hmm. kind of the the least flowery or kind of the most disturbing bit of imagery in in that monologue that she gives. But I think everything in in that monologue that we played in the beginning is like super, just inspiring. In the music, when it hits Maggie's theme, ugh. Chef's kiss. It's, it's yeah, <laughs> it's perfect because right when the theme actually does hit, that's probably the thesis statement of her monologue. Yeah, so it's timed perfectly right there. And I wanted to dive into that uh, little monologue of hers a little bit more. Yeah, because the more that she tries to say that like turning thirty is just like a thing, and I'm just gonna spend it alone by myself and just contemplate. 
you're actually turning it into a bigger deal than what it is originally, though. Like, her trying to deny that it's a big deal makes it a big deal. Yeah. Because she's going to go through this whole process, like this whole self-isolation and going to this camping trip and writing a letter. It's all very dramatic. It's all something you wouldn't do on an ordinary day. So yeah. it is, in fact, a new milestone. So I like the little button that Ed says when he says, like, you're going to be a different person because you're going to be 30. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, just the effort of trying to deflect like you don't want you don't want to make this more important than it is but just doing that gives it importance but i think you know i think I, again i think i said this uh, a little earlier maggie is optimistic um which i think she should be and you know maybe i think joel calls her out for it it's like i think your joel says something to the effect um to maggie he says something to the effect of you know, I think you're really hiding your anxiety that you that you really you're really truly nervous about turning thirty, which you know is uh, it's obvious. Um, but you know, I think it is also she could she could have this anxiety and still try to uh, what is it assume a virtue if you have it not. You know, it's like she she wants to be optimistic even if she feels anxiety. She's going to tackle thirty with as much. I don't know, confidence as she can muster. Hey, man, act as if ye have faith, and faith shall be given to you. <laughs> okay, so we get another variation of Maggie's theme. I really like this one, too. It's a lot more quieter, in my opinion, and it's her rowing the oh, boat. Yeah. She's just going across trying to get to that camping site. Yeah, this is like, you're right, it's like a little more uh, quieter. It's got like a flute on top, you know, which is nice, like a nice little flute accompaniment. And uh, yeah, these beautiful nature shots. She's rowing her canoe a lot. It's very, very wide and high angled um, shots. And when we uh, get closer into Maggie, like as she's pulling up to shore, like on, I guess the riverbank, we can see that she's sweaty. I mean, obviously she's been rowing, but you know, as, uh, as we progress throughout the story, we find out that she's kind of feverish too. So that's going to come into play. Um, But I really like her interaction here. As soon as she comes to shore, there's just this guy who's, who set up camp there, this fisherman. Uh, I really like this extra for some reason. I guess he's not an extra. He's got like a speaking part. Um, I found this on moosechick.com. The actor here that's playing this fisherman is Brian T. Finney. He was also featured in uh, some of the episodes in season three. He was a singing drunk, like a drunk person in the uh, season finale, Sicily. Yeah, I guess it must be like in the old like Western days of the town. And he was in Three Amigos. He played a character called Teak. I don't know. Maybe that was one of the characters at the who was also like in the in a bar setting, in in Three Amigos. Oh, that's nice, then. So he's like an extra, and then he probably just got like that. He knew this role was coming up or something, or they're like, "Hey, we just need like a bit part. Someone just come audition for that." And then he, yeah, got I it. think probably. I don't know exactly how it would work, but I guess like his casting agent probably worked with the show often. So anytime the show put out a casting call for certain roles, they would ask different casting agents or maybe specifically they work with his casting agent a lot. And so she'd be like, oh yeah, I have I have someone in my agency that fits this um, sort of like one sheet, like whatever this character is described as. Yeah, let's get Brian T. Fenny. He'll be perfect for the part. Here, let me play the sound bite of this interaction. I, I really like this, uh, this guy's performance. Yeah, uh, excuse me, uh... Hello. What are you doing here? Well, fishing. Here? Yeah. Oh, well, I'm afraid I'm gonna have to ask you to move. 
Beg your pardon? Yeah, I need to camp here, so you're gonna have to fish someplace else. You want me to move my camp? Yeah. This is Alaska. There's 600,000 square miles of wilderness out here. There's nobody on this river for 50 miles. This is my spot. But I need to camp here. You see, I'm from Gross Point, Michigan, and I carry around a lot of baggage from the past. Yeah, I think I just really like this guy's voice. I don't know. I, li I really like this character, too, this little guy, this fisherman. <laughs> yeah, she really just, you know, unloads onto him, just talks about her life, how um, her family life, of how her father wasn't there for her, and how her mother was kind of um, passive-aggressive, <laughs> onto this poor, poor guy. She's She's just really bad at explaining herself. Like she, she goes on and on, uh, kind of uh, without any context. It's uh, you know, this guy's obviously kind of bewildered, and I think eventually caves in and just he just leaves. Um, but I don't know. Maybe she's also, uh, you know, very sick. You know, about to. She's maybe has a fever right now, uh, but she's not speaking very clearly. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you encountered someone? I was clearly going through what was more than the subject at hand. And like you knew they were working through something and you just caught them at a bad time. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I've never had that. Like I've been the person <laughs> that's, that's done that. But I've never like gone to Target or something and somebody was just really raging like the price of the dog food or something. You're like, I bet there's something going on here more than just like the price of the dog yeah. food. Like, I think there's something deep down. Well, that's down. the thing too. It's like it would be hard to it would be hard to identify in someone else because it's, you know, I guess humans are capable of of extreme empathy, but you know, you're usually never thinking about that. You know, when you run into someone, you don't think about what they're necessarily going through. But you can see it in this guy's yeah. actions. That like he. <laughs> He can clearly see that there's something more than meets the yeah, eye right this, here. This like, scenario has dragged just... out far enough to where he can see what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> so Maggie gets the campsite. She's writing letters by the campfire. Very beautiful shot. I think it it's just a, like sort of like a one or like it's a one one take thing. Uh, you know, the campfire is glowing on her face. Um, the music is swelling. Uh, she uh, she's stands up, I guess, to go deliver the letters to the stream. And she's got like some vertigo standing up. So it's becoming, you know, pretty clear. Um, she drops the letter down. She's got some pain in her like stomach area, which I guess we later figure out is the, the appendix. Um, and she kind of lays down and uh, just to get some rest. Yeah, she just goes, conks out right there. And she wakes up to her 30th birthday. Yeah, she she realizes, she's like, oh, wait, I'm outside. What, what's going on? Oh, right, it's my birthday. And is it in this scene, like right when she wakes up, when uh, she sees, um, it's Patrick Warburton is the actor who plays yes. Glenn. Yeah, Patrick Warburton coming in strong right here. Uh, yeah, right before she sees Patrick, though, she starts rattling off an order because she's hallucinating. Oh, wait, what does she say? Yeah, she starts going through like this long, extensive order. Um, I think I remember boysenberry being oh, the word. Oh, yeah, she there. has like pancakes or and, something, right? Yeah, and then she comes to her senses that she's like, oh, no, never mind, I'm, I'm camped out here. And then Patrick stumbles out of the woods enraged because he read the letter that she wrote about him. Yeah, he says something like, did you stop to think about how this would make me feel? So it's like the letter actually made it to her dead boyfriends and uh 
Yeah. Oh, you know what? I, I guess, um, you know, when she's writing the letters by the fire, she does sort of read some of it aloud. And it does seem a little critical, right? Maybe of, um, I think she's maybe writing a letter to Rick at the time, whenever we see her by the campfire. Uh, before she delivers the letters. But yeah, like obviously whatever she wrote to uh, Glenn, that's who that's who Patrick Warburton is playing. Whatever she wrote to him uh, ticked him off, like really got on his nerves or really hurt his feelings. Yeah, he storms off and Maggie <laughs> kind of goes and follows him into the woods right there, leaving her campsite behind. I don't know what's so funny about, I don't know what it is, but I always find it very funny when there's like a shot of someone's back as they're like just like running away, like walking away from the camera. They don't say anything, <laughs> but someone's calling after them. In this case, Maggie's like, Glenn, wait, Glenn, we can talk. <laughs> you know, and it's just a shot of Patrick Warburton, but like small in the frame because he's like just walking away. Doesn't say anything. I don't know why that's I so think funny. it's it's because it's in wide angle lens, right? Yeah. Like when they're shooting that scene. Probably so it. like Yeah, they're 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 tiny figurines. Uh that you can, I guess you know that they're angry. Like you can sense it, <laughs> yeah. but because their frame is so diminutive, it's it's a juxtaposition. I guess that's why it makes it so funny. Yeah, yeah that, maybe that's it. It's like they're so small and like they're kind of a victim. Uh, you get to see their whole body language in the wide shot. That's, you know, what you're talking about. It's like the co- comedy plays out in the wide is what they say. Maybe that's it. It's sort of a, a conditioning of just uh, laughing at Laughing at the situation, this wider shot. He kind of stumbles up there. Uh, yeah, kinda, yeah. Kinda, you know, it's it's really funny. He that, doesn't like really storm he, off because it takes him a while, right? <laughs> to yeah, he. Uh, it's not an efficient way, like <laughs> to get up that hill. I think he's great, um, Patrick Warburton. He's just like this great big tough guy, but sort of a buffoon at the same time. Okay, when you think of Patrick Warburton, what role? do you picture him like what, what what is a quintessential film role or television role that you see him so i don't know if it would be quintessential but just the thing that comes to my mind is um is it cronk is that his name the in the emperor's new groove oh cronk yeah 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 <laughs> what do you think of i the b movie <laughs> wait who is he's, who is he he's the, the guy that that the, the woman is married to Oh, like wow. about to be married to I, oh, I, wow. I forgot I don't know if they're like actually engaged or anything but like he's doing one of the film that questions this bead as just talking like <laughs> that's I always I always see him in that role he's got a great you know obviously a great voice talent too oh yeah no, <laughs> definitely so during this whole sort of like fever dream that I guess you could call this a fever dream of Maggie's uh, you know whether or not it's real um, if it's just in her imagination. But uh, during this, it's kind of intercut with Joel. You know, that's when we were talking about when Joel, well, he he rushes into Ruth Ann's store and it's a bit of an emergency. That's when we were talking about he, he, he mentions that he ran her blood and, you know, she could have a severe bacterial infection and she's out in the middle of nowhere. We need to find her. So, Ed is also there in Ruth Ann's store. He's been working with Ruth Ann, I guess, still. And I really like this exchange. Yeah, let me just play it. Hey. Morning, Joe. Hi, do you know where Maggie is? She's at the river. I, I know which one. There are a million rivers. I need to find her. Do you know which one? Yeah. What's wrong, Joe? Is everything all right? So it's kind of hard maybe to 
to read into the humor here just in this short bite without the without the picture. But what I think is so funny is uh, Joel has this urgency and uh, he asks Ed, you know, it's like, do you know where Maggie is? And he says, yeah. He says, you know, uh, she's at the river. And Joel says, you know, it's like, well, which river? There's like a million rivers here. Like, do you know which one? And Ed says, yeah. <laughs> like, he doesn't say which one. <laughs> He's just like, oh, yeah, I know where she is. It's like, well, you have to tell me. You need to tell me where she is because I have to find her. I think this is where the episode gets really good, though, because it introduces a third act to it. And there's urgency to needing to find Maggie. Because I thought it was just going to end with, like, uh, Maggie having some sort of a... Kind of what it plays out, honestly, with her ex-boyfriends. Um, I thought it was just going to have that. But there is an actual conclusion to it, which is Joel coming in to save her. And I like that they went in that direction. They generally don't in Northern Exposure Dead. Like, they don't have these uh, suspenseful, very action-oriented scenes. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. That was something I noticed. Uh, I, I thought it was like definitely a new direction. This feels more like ER or so, like more of like it's a medical emergency. It feels like primetime TV, if only for just a minute. I do like that they, you know, during this whole sort of run, whenever they're like driving, I think there's a scene with uh, Ed and Joel in uh, the cab of his truck. And he's like, well, there's a million things that could be like, this could be wrong, this could be wrong. We just got to get to her fast enough. It's like action canoe, you know, they're like canoeing really fast. But, um, <laughs> you know, during, throughout all this, like they do take a take a moment to stop and talk about, I really like when uh, Joel and Ed are taking the canoe off the truck, like to about to put it in the water and go, and go find Maggie. Uh, they stop and, and talk and Joel talks about uh, sort of his, his own um, feelings about he's a, he's going to be turning 30 soon, right? He's not 30 yet. Yeah, he says he's just about to turn 30 and he's thinking about the ways that he failed to live up to the expectations of himself mostly. But I like his take on growing old or, or at least why he thinks he's doomed. Because he's saying that when he was younger, he always got these awards because he was the youngest to achieve said mark. Like, he was like, oh, like, I did this at this age, and that made me much more ahead of the curve. But what's the point of being ahead of the curve if it didn't lead to anything? Now I'm at this stage, and everyone else has caught up to me. Like, it didn't matter that I was so ahead because yeah. we all end up in the same place in a way. And I I, I kind of empathize with his thinking right there. And, you know, thinking about how you achieved so much when you were younger, but then when you got older, you just like, it, it was all for naught. Yeah, I think we can all relate to what Joel's saying here is like, you know, you achieve, I, I you know, I guess most people have, uh, are, who are lucky enough to have a a, a good childhood, you know, uh, it's sort of the glory days. And and then also, like, if you're an achiever as a kid, you know, I like what Joel says, I won't be a whiz kid anymore. Not the smartest, like, as you said. I'm not adorable anymore. We'll get to that. I like that part of it. But, um, yeah, I totally related. And this actually reminded me of, uh, I think, a, a film we saw together, Charles. If not, we definitely talked about it. I know you're a fan of um, Mike Birbiglia, the movie Don't Think Twice, there's like a um, there's a character I think it's Kate Micucci's character in the film who uh, the, the movie's about this uh, improv group of comedians some of them go on to fame some of them just you know don't really go anywhere and Kate Micucci's character is uh, you know she's she's one of those that's not really excelling in I guess the comedy landscape 
And but she doesn't. She I think she she, she turns towards like um, cartoon uh, and um, comic books and stuff. She makes like a graphic novel, and it's called Best in My Hometown. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was something that she was working on in her own time. Like it, she kind of hid it from the rest of the improv troupe. Yeah, I mean, it has the same similar themes and similar are just like similar thoughts of like you know excelling in your youth and then where do you go from there? You know, it's such a hard jump. It's not even so much saying that, you know, like I was uh, I was the whiz kid and it's not going to matter now that I'm 30, but it's more that it's like there is a jump that occurs that you have to take. You know, when you get older, uh, certain milestones maybe or just like certain parts of your life, you know, they say like when you have your bar mitzvah, you become a man. But I think maybe you grow up a number of times in your life. And one of those times might be when you turn 30. Like you, you, you will grow up and you will change and you'll become more experienced. And sometimes it's, uh, sometimes it sneaks up on you and sometimes it's sort of a leap of faith that you might have to take. Yeah. Yeah. I gotta say like, I I think it hits home close to me because a lot of times when I did something when I was younger, it was because I would be like the youngest person on the stage that was doing this or like I was the youngest person that was achieving said thing. So it was like a parlor trick for me almost yeah. where it was just like everyone else could be like, oh, wow, he's like he's so young and he's doing the same thing that I am, and but I'm much more older. So that gave me like, you know, secretly like a sense of pride to be like, oh, I'm achieving this amount of success, whatever it was at that moment. But now that I got older, I'm like that's no longer a uh, factor now. Like the the skill sets that I'm developed when I was younger is expected of me at this age if I was going into said field. So that's kind of where I'm seeing what Joel is saying. Is like I'm no longer like I, I don't have the adorable factor. I, I'm not a whiz kid anymore. That's something that you lose out on when you grow older. Is that. Yeah. The expectations that people have for you only grow as you grow older. No one's going to be super impressed if you can do, I don't know, multiplication tables when you're like 30. <laughs> it's super impressive when you're four. Like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. It's like, it's the big, I mean, like everyone, it's kind of like a great leveler once you once you get up there in the years, I guess. I don't know what to say really. Um, but uh, I do want to talk about <laughs> How Joel says he's not, he's, you know, I'm not going to be adorable anymore. I'm not adorable anymore. See? Well, you look okay to me, Dr. Fleischman. Thanks. Thank you, Ed. Forget it. I didn't mean it like that. I mean, well, you're cute. Better than okay. I would call you handsome, but you're really not very tall. More like you. There is a scene in American Dad that is actually very similar to what we're talking about. Uh, I think Roger the Alien, uh, he says, I'll tell you what's going on. I like Snot. He's cute and he's funny and he treats me nice. Reminds me of a young Paul Reiser. And Steve <laughs> replies back, He is nothing like a young Paul Reiser. He's Rob Morrow on his best day. <laughs> oh, wow. What did a young Paul Reiser look like? I can only I think of him as as old. <laughs> Let me see. He's not too bad. Like he kind of looks like a. Oh my a gosh. gosh! Wait, he's he's the guy in Aliens. He's the um like the evil corporate like back. Okay, uh, spoiler alert: the guy who like stabs Ridley in the back in Aliens. That's when he's oh, like he's, really young. He he stabs Sigourney Weaver. That's no, it that doesn't. Character? Not not not. Uh, he figuratively uh, betrays her. He betrays. Oh, her. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> 
That yeah, that is a pretty is that Paul Reiser? It is. Yeah, okay. So he is quite attractive, I would say, in that film. And he is like he's kind of flirty with uh, Ridley in that in that movie as well. Um, but I don't know. I would I think I would take I'm looking at some other pictures of of a young Paul Reiser. I think I would take Rob Morrow over. But I gotta say I appreciate the uh Northern Exposure reference in uh, American Dad. <laughs> yeah, so it looks like we're in a cookout. Uh, I, I don't, I don't really know what to describe it. It's like a picnic of sorts, but it is featuring all of Maggie's greatest hits. <laughs> yeah, all of her dead boyfriends, her exes. Uh, yeah, I, I would call it a cookout. There's like a grill. Um, there's mention, I think, in in some like dialogue. Uh, some like background voices are talking about beer and burgers. It's pretty awesome. You know, there's like it's just like people hanging out with the picnic table. Um, Rick has got a gut now. You know he's got a bit of a belly. I saw um, at the at the top of this episode, you see like you know the credits of like the guest stars and Grant Goodeve uh, flashed on the screen. And uh, I think I mentioned this earlier in our podcast, but I I've really liked Rick a lot more in this rewatching of Northern Exposure. So I'm glad to finally get him back on screen. Uh, now he's got a cut. Do you think that was like an actual cut or do you think they like stuffed a pillow into him? I think, you know, I think they stuffed a pillow into him, you know, cause I was thinking about that. It was like, um, maybe he got, maybe he gained weight, but specifically it was part of like the writing why he has a gut now because they kind of make a point. Um, what is it? It's like, uh, whenever Rick was going out with Maggie, she would like hide the ice cream from him if he like gained a pound or something. You know, she was very restrictive on his diet. She says it was because she was concerned for his health. And he says it was because she wanted him to be attractive like a trophy or something. Uh, so now that they're not together, and I guess now that he's dead, you know, he can eat whatever he wants and gain the gut. So I think it was part of the writing. So it kind of looked kind of, I don't know, it didn't look right, you know, like an extra gut on him. I don't know. What do yeah. you think? No, 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 I agree with you. I think that it was probably like a pillar or something because it was part of the writing. Like they they had made a point to have that in there. Uh, I think the problem that I have with the scene, and I, I, I didn't know it was going to go this direction, is that it seems like it's showing Maggie as this person that was defined by her ex-boyfriends. I, I thought that they were going to confront something else about Maggie's past that was holding her. Mm. But it seems like it's saying that like, oh, it's the way that I was treating my ex-boyfriends and that's what's making me a flawed character. And if I can just correct those measures, I'm going to go on to 30 as a better human being. And I'm not saying that that's not a possibility. I just don't like a female character being anchored by her relationship with other men, especially with a character like Maggie, where she has all sorts of characteristics and I don't think the crowning descriptor of her is the person that had six ex-boyfriends that died. Now, that is something that can be described as her. But, you know, when I think of Maggie O'Connell, I think of, like, very independent, headstrong, able to fix things by herself. She doesn't need anybody. But she also has a sensitive side. In this scene, it kind of depicts her as somebody that, like, oh, these six men, they were, they really defined me. And, and then without them, I'd be nothing. Yeah, I see where you're going. Yeah, uh, I I like that this episode, it kind of does do a bit of a shift in this scene because at the start of the episode, uh, when she's you know the first half when she's 
planning to write all these letters to her ex-boyfriends. It's really um, sort of she's taking this stance as, you know, these people, these memories are holding her back, you know, and this is something that she's got to expel from her life to move forward. So in this case, like all of her failed relationships um, and the problems that she's had with love, this is just holding her back and she needs to move forward from this. Um, and we come to realize that, you know, it's it's not so much that these memories and these people was what was holding her back, but that there's also a way for her to begin to see what she was like in the past. Not just like her surroundings, not her environment or her situation, but herself uh, that can also grow. It's not so much about shedding bad memories or bad experiences, um, but looking at yourself and finding room for growth there, how to change yourself for the better. Um, but I guess I can also agree with you, Charles, you know, like if we're just using this as a device to kind of be critical of Maggie's character, that's a little unfair. But I think uh, what's going on here is sort of that reveal of Maggie turning 30 is not so much about distancing herself from the mistakes or uh, the problems of her past, but seeing that uh, it's not just you know the people she involved herself with. It's not those. It's herself that she can control and she can grow forward with. Because she doesn't really change her dead exes in this scene. You know they still are kind of uh, you know they'd rather hang out with each other than her. You know they're they're glad to be away from her. But it's in this scene I think where she uh, she sees that growth is not just about like a new position in life. It's like a new you. You know. Mm, okay, I see what you're what you're putting down. Yeah. You're like you're yeah. Okay. No, that's really it's it's not that the ex-boyfriends are the the vehicle for this entire change. It's mostly that she's looking inward and that they happen to be the device that they're using to achieve said inward introspection. Yeah. Because in this whole scene, like they're kind of, you know, they've received these letters that, you know, she wrote as like a one-way dialogue. You know, it was just her. You know, they didn't have a chance to respond. And when they do get the chance to respond, they can finally uh, you know, kind of like let her know what they think about her. And uh, really, I think what 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 is key here is um, she's uh, she has the line. Uh, she's talking to her, all of her dead exes. She's like, why are you doing this to me? Why am I doing this to me? So she realizes that, you know, even if this is like a real vision, Maybe it is, it could just be in her head and it's her own scrutiny of herself that's going to um, spur on some growth, I guess. There is, I really, I think like the laugh out loud moment in this episode for me was uh, the the guy Steve reading the newspaper. Do you remember this? Yeah, he was the one wearing the uh, brown blazer and the t-shirt. Yeah, he's kind of like in the background of the whole scene. Uh, very quiet, like not trying to draw attention to himself, just reading a newspaper. And finally, Maggie has to call him out. She's like, wait, who, who are you? Who, who, who are you? Steve. Steve? Iskandon. Steve Iskandon. My dad and your dad were golfing buddies. We went out once. Uh, we saw Chariots of Fire, and then we had some pizza. We did. J- just that one day? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did we... Uh... Uh-huh. But you're not. A lightning oil rig. I was taking some pictures for an annual report. Boom. <laughs> oh, man, I love how he delivers the the uh, the boom at the end. <laughs> yeah. 
I guess he is part of the ex-boyfriend gang. Like, she says that she only spent one date night with them, and it ended, um, you know, they, they played a full game of baseball, but, <laughs> like, does that really make him a boyfriend? I think, I don't, yeah, that's the thing, is, like, from this, um, I guess the canon from the show is that all of her boyfriends die. She's just got sort of, like, this death curse or something. But I think that curse is extended. I don't know if it has already been done in the canon, but anyone that she sleeps with dies. At least that's what. At least if it hasn't been established yet, that's what's established in this scene. She slept with Steve once, and uh, he's dead. That's bad news for Chris then, because didn't Chris sleep with her in season two, episode one? Uh, I think they just kissed. There was there was a closed door, so I don't know if it. Uh, if it will apply to Chris, but Chris could be uh, next on the chopping block. Also, you know, this is this is a fever dream for Maggie. So realistically, if if uh, every person that she's had sex with actually dies, you know that that would probably so that's probably not canon. I guess um, this is this could just be her fever dream. I do think it's um, it's funny because he's like the he's the one person who's not really mad at her. He just seems to be totally relaxed reading a newspaper. Doesn't really mind his situation. You know, he even laughs at himself at the end. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's because he had the least amount of time with Maggie. So he had the (laughs) least amount of beef. Yeah, he's like, doesn't really have any beef. It's like, you know, maybe it's your fault. Can't really say, but I'm here. (laughs) It's a great, it's a a funny image too, because um, it's all of her exes, you know, and and she's like wrapped up in a blanket, you know, sitting there uh, in the same, um, you know, picnic bench with them. And that's when... Joel and Ed enter the fever dream. Yeah, Joel kind of comes in defending Maggie, saying, like, you know, she came from a really tough childhood. Uh, they weren't very open on communication. And if you guys came with that, y'all would have y'all would have been the same like Maggie. You would have been closed off or hypercritical or very controlling or yada, yada, whatever negative attitude that you want to use. Uh, basically, he was just saying, like, you would have been worse off if you were in Maggie's shoe, so lay off of her. Yeah, he says, like, you know, she's working on it. You know, and uh, kind of like the things that you were saying earlier, like in, in Maggie's defense, like all the great attributes, how she's, um, you know, independent, uh, caring, you know, very, like, very headstrong at times. Um, yeah, you know, Joel Joel's here to kind of save the day and really join her on her side like a, like a true friend. You know, I think it's funny in this dream, Ed is dressed in like a, like a cheap Indian costume, like with the feather headdress. Is that what she thinks of Ed? <laughs> Seriously. Well, and, and she, I think it's funny. She's like, oh, Ed, nice feathers, you know, because <laughs> she can see the, in her dream, I guess, see, see the feather headdress. There's a really awesome sort of in-camera transition that happens here that sort of brings Maggie back into reality, like when she's like like coming back to life here. So it starts and, you know, it's sort of like similar to the same coverage like a static shot on Maggie just as before when she's sort of talking to her boyfriend. She's sitting down at the picnic, uh, I guess the picnic table. And uh, the camera, you know, Joel lifts her up because he's about to lay her on the ground so he could administer this IV. And as Joel lifts her up from the picnic table, the camera moves following her. You know, it's like handheld now. And it's like following her face, which remains in the center of the frame while the background is like shifting all around because her body is changing position, but the camera stays static on her, uh, even though it's like handheld now. It's got a lot more sort of reality. You know, handheld is like, I guess, air quotes like reality. You know, 
Um, and it's really cool because she's lowered onto the ground and then the camera really like pushes in uh, sort of quickly to her face as if like everything is rushing in at once, like reality is rushing in. And uh, Joel begins to tell her, you know, you have an inflamed appendix. We're going to give you this IV. We're going to go bring you to surgery or something, right? That's really interesting. Does that actually have a name for that technique? Uh, what I would just call it, I guess, is sort of like handheld. Um, it's almost like it almost feels like snorri cam, which is a it's a whole different thing. But you might I'm trying to think of a good example of a movie. But basically, when uh, the camera is actually attached to the actor, so imagine if you have like a selfie stick and uh, you're spinning around. You know, you have the camera at a fixed point, at a fixed distance away from you, but it's always sort of centered on you. And so, if you spin around. You stay the same position, but the background just like blurs and, and switches. So um, a snorri cam is when you would sort of like attach the camera in a similar way to a person. But this isn't really snorri cam, though it kind of emulates the same feeling because the camera moves and follows Maggie's face, albeit it's like in a handheld way. But, you know, her face is sort of in the center of the frame as everything around her changes because her position is changing. Joel is picking her up and moving her off the table, laying her on the ground. And then we get like a, a swift like push in at the end. So it's a number of different techniques, I guess, in, in this one shot, which makes a crazy transition. It really feels like you're switching out of the, the dream state into reality. Mm, okay. No, that's really awesome. I think one of the things that made it difficult to separate reality and being part of a fever dream is whenever Joel is helping Maggie out of the bag and he kind of says something to the effect of, I'm going to try to hold you close and I'll try not to get turned on. And you can't tell if that's fever dream Maggie thinking that Joel said that or actual reality Joel who said that. Yeah, either way, I mean, doctor-patient relationship. Come on, man. You have to have a little more professionalism. I know Maggie's your friend, but go ahead. But if it was fever dream Maggie, that means that she's hoping that Joel has feelings for her. Yeah, because she has blatantly come out another episode saying that she wanted Joel to want her like like in that way. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it's open to interpretation. I kind of saw it as like um you know like when you're about to wake up and you can hear your alarm clock in your dream. So like the real world is like starting to enter your dream. I kind of saw it as that cuz ah. we're still like in this dream state, I feel like in just the visuals of the um of the moment. But uh, what Joel is saying sounds, well, I don't know. It sounds professional at first, and then he does tag on that that bit at the end about, I'll try not to get turned on. Well, maybe maybe he knows that she's going through intense pain, so he's trying to inject any form of humor at that situation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, maybe that's the way of, like, making your patient comfortable. <laughs> does it? <laughs> I'm trying to, like, figure out how it would work. But uh, sure, like, a, as, a, as a burst of a joke, I guess, a burst of humor. So the next scene in this plot line is actually the last scene in the episode. Joel is going to visit Maggie in her hospital bed. And actually, I don't, I don't know if there actually was, like, an um, appendectomy. Like, if did they remove the appendix? Because I think... So when Joel comes to the rescue with the IV, he says, we're going to get you to a hospital. He doesn't say anything about surgery. Um, and then here, I don't think they, they mention any. I know uh, Maggie says she's whacked out on pain pills, but I'm assuming they took out her appendix, but I don't know. 
That, that's what I, would have to happen, right? Yeah, I think yeah. that's what we're led to believe is that they <laughs> performed appendectomy on her to remove their appendix. And it kind of goes along with the timeline, too, because Joel says that he's been up for 36 hours. So that's, I mean, pretty reasonable time for a recovery surgery, maybe. Oh, well, so he says he's been up for, um, because he also says in the scene, happy birthday. But I guess that's uh, a late birthday, a late happy birthday, belated. Yeah. Uh, Hey, it kind of makes sense, man. Surgery takes about one hour, but you go home from 24 to 36 hours after the surgery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, our timeline is is all mixed up. But uh, yeah, so it, so it makes sense. He's been waiting for her to wake up, I guess, or she's been in the hospital for this long. Uh, he, he gives her a kiss. I think it's on the, the forehead. And she says, what was that for? And that's when he says, you know, happy birthday. I guess belated if he's been there for 36 hours. But... Um, thank God they kept in the Stevie Wonder song at the end because, you know, uh, famously, uh, with this show on the DVDs, they sub out a lot of the music for, you know, just like royalty free songs, uh, just like elevator music and stuff. But, uh, here they've kept the Stevie Wonder happy birthday track, which is, uh, and really they just, they kind of ride on it. You know, they stay in this wide shot. Uh, which is sort of a classic Northern Exposure move, you know. Proven the test of time, you know. This is this is works time and time again. They like end an episode, or they'll just like hold on this long wide shot for a while. God, I love it. You know, let's, let's, let's hold on this shot and then and then roll the credits. Boom. Yeah. No, definitely super effective. Uh, I think we talked about this before on the pod, but did you know that Happy Birthday to You is copyrighted? Right. So what's the deal with that? Yeah, so the story goes is that these two sisters created the song and then transferred the copyright to another sister who transferred it to a company, which transferred it to another company, which was eventually acquired by Warner Music. So because of that long chain of events, Warner Music claims that they have the copyright for Happy Birthday to You. But in 2016, a judge actually challenged them on that. So... Based on the ruling in this case, the U.S. District Judge Court George H. King came to the conclusion that Warner Music actually doesn't hold any valid copyright to the song because that long chain of sequence wasn't like properly documented. <laughs> so what it basically means is that Warner Music can't go out anymore and demand license fees for the performance of these lyrics, but it's actually not in the public domain yet because... Theoretically, some other party could come forward and attempt to establish that that party is the successor in interest to the author by showing some sort of chain of title. Oh. So we can use Happy Birthday to You or at least the lyrics to it. <laughs> well, that's some good news, I guess. Um, so that's the end of the episode, but uh, there's still a couple more plot lines that we haven't touched on. So we're, we're going to like reel it back a bit. Uh, we kind of touched on a little bit. Maurice is, we can, we can go through this one really fast. Maurice is sort of writing a memoir. Uh, again, another sort of like that, that idea in the beginning of the episode, another piece of paper, like, like a milestone, um, kind of fits into Chris's, uh, radio engineer certification monologue bit. Uh, anyway, what develops here? Maurice develops like a, basically his hand like becomes like a claw, because uh, Joel can quickly diagnose, you know, you have writer's cramp. So uh, because he's been writing on this pad so much, kind of like tr trying to come up with his memoir, Maurice ditches the writing pad for a microcassette recorder. 
You know, he's walking around Ruthann's store. It's just, it's just, it's really bugging a lot of people. Yeah, Maurice is trying to sell his memoirs to Doubleday, which used to be a publishing company back in the day, but then very recently, I think they got acquired by Penguin Random House. So it's no longer a publishing company anymore. But he's trying to sell to them based on events of his life. And yeah, he starts using that, um, what did you call it? Uh, micro cassette recorder, like the little handheld recorder. It, re- it records those like tiny tapes. Yeah, 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 those old school things. And it really bugs everyone in town. Yeah, and um, the conclusion of this is Ruthann smashes his recorder with a hammer. Like, you can't yeah, just that do was, that. Like, I mean, yeah, no, you can't do that. But it was also super telegraphed. Yeah, you know, she was, she was constantly bugged by Maurice and... You know, why would she, she even says like, Hey, can I see that for a second? Why would you hand it to her? <laughs> I guess he's like, he's pretty um, excited about his new toy. Cause he, he didn't start with the recorder. He started with the pad and then he switched to the recorder. So whatever reason he shouldn't, he shouldn't have given it to her cause she just smashes it. <laughs> <laughs> and then the final plot line is Chris trying to teach Marilyn how to drive. Yeah. So we established earlier that Marilyn is reading the, Driver's manual for the state. Actually, Joel first offers to give her driving lessons, but she declines. She said she doesn't trust Joel. Uh, and even she she takes a driving lesson with Ruth Ann, um, actually. But I love uh, the conclusion of that is, you know, Marilyn's pretty bad, right? Like there's like a, a big like semi-truck behind her, like honking, like she's driving really slow. Finally, they pull off, and Ruthann says, "All right, that's enough for today." And Marilyn asks if they're gonna, you know, pick up tomorrow. The same thing. Ruthann says, "No, I'm I'm too old for this sort of thing," which is just a great excuse. You know, I can't wait to be old enough to just say, "Sorry, I'm too old for that. I'm not gonna do it." <laughs> <laughs> there is also we're starting this off season four, episode one. Dog watch? dog watch. Yeah, the dog crosses the street when Marilyn's learning to drive. Yeah. I, I, I really don't know if that's planned. Like, is there a dog handler on set? They're like, all right, we're going for a scene where Marilyn's uh, learning to drive and set the dog across the street now. Yeah, no, there's definitely got to be that. I mean, okay, maybe if you, you could say maybe there's like a, a lot of stray dogs or just a stray dog in um, Roslyn, Washington, which is where they shot uh, the exteriors, like the street scenes for this. You know, but even still, there would need to be some sort of safety on set, so they wouldn't want the dog to cross the street if it was just like a real stray dog. You know, it's dangerous for the dog, for the drivers. Uh, so no, yeah, that's that's definitely a trained animal that uh, that they're sending out there. Oh, god, that's hilarious. But yeah, she eventually turns to Chris. Yeah, so she approaches Chris in sort of that big garage set. I think we've seen this at least once before. I remember commenting on it. When it was like first introduced, I think Maggie's like working on her truck. I don't think it's a plane. I think it's her truck. Really cool set with like big windows, big garagey type feel. And uh, she asks, you're right. She asks Chris to teach her how to drive. But Chris doesn't see himself as a teacher. He's too modest. I really like the exchange here. She, you know, he's like, you know, I'm not really a teacher, but she says, but you're a good driver. And Chris um, responds, I am. It's true. I am. Yeah, and that plays into the whole theme of it. It's like, just because you're really good at this thing doesn't necessarily mean that you'd be a good teacher because teaching is a special skill on itself. Yeah, Chris really learns what it's like to be a teacher and he kind of gets obsessed with it. Like, he's really into it. He's almost more into the driving lessons 
we see than Marilyn is. Like his, his uh, he, he never, I guess he was too modest at first to take this uh, teaching opportunity. But once he's got it, he really, I don't know, he, he's really digging it. Um, but as you said, by the end of this plot line, kind of sees like what it means or what it can mean to be a teacher. And it, it's uh, it's not so much that you can be like a great driver and teach someone how to drive. It's a, it's a different type of skill. Yeah, though I do like the moment where Chris and Marilyn are in the car together and Chris is kind of rattling off uh, Carfax. Yeah. And he kind of comes to the realization is like, oh, I wouldn't have realized this if I wasn't teaching. Yeah. Just the act of teaching also can lend itself to you learning more about the subject. Yeah, like teaching someone else in a way fortifies your knowledge maybe or um, when you have to explain something to someone, you get an, an even better understanding of it, I guess. Uh, but yeah, Chris says, I like his line. He says, this is interesting. This is very interesting. This is what teaching means to the teacher. He thanks Marilyn in this moment. And I love her response. She says, you're welcome. <laughs> you know? um, uh, that is definitely true. I've had to, I've had to tutor uh, throughout my life uh, lots of kids on like the math portion on SAT or something. Mm-hmm. And I have to like flip through the book myself to like relearn like how to, yeah. how to find like the square root of something. <laughs> and yeah, a lot of times like I have to think in my mind to be like, all right, how would I explain this to like a 15-year-old? Like what is the most efficient manner for me to dilute information down to? And if I can't do it, oftentimes I'll be like, all right, then I truly actually don't know this. Like if I can't even do this portion of it. So yeah. I think that Adage, 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 yeah. Adage. I think the adage really is true is that like if you can't explain it whatsoever, like if you can't teach it, then you really can't do it. Yeah, no, there's definitely um, that's that's a good way to look at it. Um, I like Chris here in the scene. Um, some of his advice, it's very like Zen. He 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 references Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance later in the episode. Jeez, oh, <laughs> that book sucks. What? Excuse yes, me. Absolutely. Why, wait, why is, is why is it bad? Ah, oh, God, it's, it's so overrated. I I remember really liking it, but uh, maybe I should reread it. <laughs> I don't want to. Yeah, hold no, up. I, if, I you, if you have any fan, if you have any hate mail, because you can <laughs> you can address it to care of Charles. I, don't I just need to think read that this. it's always used in such a stereotypical manner. Okay, uh, maybe, yeah, maybe it's like pretentious or something to. To quote it, or, or <laughs> I don't know. It, it, yeah, yeah, it's that thing that you bring out whenever you're trying to impress somebody. Be like, well, according to Zen and the art of motorcycle, you should seek your own path in life. And I was like, blah blah. I blah, mean, blah, we blah. always we always like sort of reference like David Foster Wallace or Infinite Jest in the same sort of like school of pretension. But I mean, I also <laughs> like I also like that book. But um, there, there, there's a fine line. There's a fine line because I don't want to dog <laughs> on anybody that genuinely likes anything. Like if you if you really like this thing, I don't want to be the person to be like, no, you're wrong. Like that's like that's yeah. a terrible thing to believe in. It's just that I guess I don't like the over pretentious fans of the book. Gotcha. It can breed uh, a certain fandom. Well, what, okay. What we're saying here is this is Charles's opinion. Like to him. That book sucked. It's not a sucky book. It's not a yeah, bad yeah, book. Yeah, I'm not going to say like any form of art, quote unquote, sucked. That's, that's a huge uh, over blanket statement to make. All right, we're dialing it back a little. Um, but uh, what did I already quote this? I, I like his, um, his line in the scene. Driving is kind of like breathing. He can't think too much about it. 
the three C's of confidence, common sense, and consciousness. You know, a lot of it is just kind of like, Chris Chris is really good at monologuing. I guess probably, you know, he likes the sound of his own voice maybe. And that's not a bad thing necessarily. He's got a great voice and he's a great orator, you know. Um, so he's really able to to kind of dive into this teaching role. But what develops next? Oh, I like their next. So this is the their next lesson, which is the uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance lesson. Uh, he kind of highlights how technology can be um, can be Zen. You know, like how a car starts and how it runs. You know, it's not so much a mental thing; it can be a mechanical thing. Can make a sort of uh, state of Zen in a way. But uh, oh. I interpreted that a little bit different where he was talking about the way that the piston works, which is a controlled explosion. So it's saying like within this chaos, you can actually find some sort of equilibrium, a way to make things move. No, I think that's very accurate too. And yeah, I mean, this, this scene goes on for a bit. It's not a short scene and still, I don't really know what Chris is talking about. And that means Marilyn probably isn't following along very well either, but uh, somehow it's, just like wildly fascinating. I think it's just because I like John Corbett, Chris, you know. <laughs> so the final scene has Chris approaching Marilyn for another driving lesson. I think he's going to teach her parallel parking, yeah. which uh, please come teach me, Chris, because I don't actually <laughs> know how to do it. Though I will have to say to this, listeners of the pod, Lee is really good at parallel parking. Like it's oh. unbelievable how good he is. I'm okay at, at it. Scale. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm not bad. Thanks. In fact, actually, Charles, now I'm going to teach. This is going to be like our own episode where I teach you, and then you decide <laughs> you're you're just going to start riding a bike instead. <laughs> okay, well, you were just saying, so yeah, so this is a scene where Chris goes to give Marilyn a driving lesson, uh, another one, you know, parallel parking, but, but what happens here? Yeah, so Marilyn declines him on his offer and says, like, no, like, I, I just don't want to learn how to drive anymore. I miss walking. Yeah, which is, you know, kind of a simple answer, but um, I think it it can also be profound. You know, again, maybe I just like to, we just like to overanalyze this, I guess, or really look into it. But to me, uh, in a way, her her answer, I miss walking. You know, I think that's uh, another point of view of um, just one of the themes of this episode of like entering a new phase in your life and growing and, and doing something new. In this case, um, Marilyn doesn't really want to drive anymore, which is not always a bad thing. You know, n- not not growing, but may- maybe holding on to a tradition, that can also be a- very important, you know, and that- that's kind of the perspective maybe that Marilyn brings to the episode. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a really great analysis right there. It's that like, maybe breakthroughs are overrated. Like, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, and I, I kind of believe in that, like, We've talked about this, I think, on the podcast. Yeah, I think we have too. Like any door that can be opened so quickly can also be shut just as quickly. (laughs) But yeah, it seems that Chris takes it really hard because, yeah, I mean, I guess the answer is acceptable. She says like, I miss walking. But to Chris, it seems like maybe she was just trying to protect his feelings because maybe he genuinely thinks that she thinks he is a terrible teacher. Yeah. Yeah. It takes, it's, uh, he had a lot of fun doing it and it's kind of a blow one to see it end. And then two, to maybe realize that maybe, you know, maybe it's that he wasn't a good teacher or maybe it's that teaching is not as easy as it feels or, or it's, it's just something he doesn't fully grasp. Uh, when he thought he saw it so clear, you know, 
I, I like uh, the analogy he makes. Um, it's in a monologue uh, at, at K-Bear, the radio station. His analogy is, you know, a student came to me with a desire to know the time, and I told her how to make a watch. Um, so it's kind of like what you're saying. It's like you need to, uh, I don't know, something about being a teacher maybe is like you have to get on the level, the same level with the student. You need to understand what they know, what they want to know. And uh, it's not so much about teaching them everything you know, but figuring out what they can or what they're willing to learn and what they want to learn, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's showing them the road rather than like, you know, babysit them throughout the road and all that. So yeah. I have to say, his uh, his metaphor kind of runs counter to that oh, yeah. old one where it's like, you give a man a fish, he won't be hungry for a day. You teach a man how to fish, he'll never be hungry. Because <laughs> yeah. that's the same thing, though. You're like, a man approaches you, he's like, I'm hungry. It's like, let me teach you how to fish. He's like, but I'm hungry. I just want to eat now. Like, <laughs> it's kind of like the same thing. Yeah. Well, I guess I, I will... Yeah, yeah, you're right. But I mean, if someone approached you and is like, hey, what time is it? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, but if someone but if someone approached you and, and asked, hey, hey, what time is it? And you said, um, I don't know, but I can show you how to make a watch and, and that'll solve your problem. But, you know, that'll be that'll be like three hours later. So I won't know I won't need to know what time it, it is uh if I've you know, by the time I've learned how to make a watch. Sorry, I can't get this sentence out because I was like laughing a lot for a second. <laughs> um okay. yeah, I see what you're saying, yeah. But uh <laughs> So speaking of teaching, our guest for today's episode is actually our old high school teacher, Ms. McFarlane. Yes. Yeah, we, Charles, we've been talking about this for a while. We really wanted to get Ms. McFarlane on an episode at some point. And this just kind of felt right. You know, just, it has a, you know, it's kind of a subplot, but um, kind of focuses a little bit about the mindset of a teacher, what it takes to be a teacher. And uh, what better than to hear from a teacher, you know, their point of view. It turns out yeah. Miss McFarlane is a big fan or was a big fan of Northern Exposure when it was on the air at the time. So I'm curious to see if she remembered this episode. Uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, before, before we toss to Miss McFarlane, I wanted to quickly mention, Charles, do you remember in Miss McFarlane's class, we were assigned the book, How to Read Literature Like an English Professor? Yes, that was the first book she assigned to us. It was our summer reading whenever we were just coming into her junior class. She assigned that and F. Scott Fitzgerald's Great Gatsby. Oh, again, an another, you know, oftentimes, like, I can remember in school, like, a, any book that you're assigned to read, you're just like, oh, I don't want to read this. But I don't know, I guess at that time in high school, I was really into classic literature. And it was those types of books, the assigned readings that, I was the most excited about. Like I would be checking out books from the library that were just classic literature that most kids would get assigned to read and, and just sort of hate. But um, but I don't know, maybe that's a large part due to her teaching, uh, her class. But I did want to talk about how to read literature like an English professor just because I feel like we use things that we've learned from that book all the time on this podcast. Just, just kind of learning how to really dive into uh, a piece of art, be it literature, film, or anything, and understanding that any sort of stroke of a painter or any sort of sentence, you know, can have so much meaning behind it that the artist can place 
into a piece of art, like an expression or something like that. Yes, absolutely. Ms. McFarlane was the first teacher to teach me that every single word that an author uses or every single paint stroke that an artist uses, all of that is carefully crafted. It's deliberate. They spend hundreds of thousands of hours working on this piece of work, trying to say that like the glasses of T.J. Eckelberg actually do mean something. He's not just wearing glasses for nothing. They're not blue for nothing. <laughs> There's symbolism within this stuff. And I know that a lot of... A lot of people like to roll their eyes and say, like, oh, you're, you're going way too into it. Like, it's just this because it's this. It's description. Yeah. But I think that that's doing a disservice sometimes to the authors that worked really hard or to the artists themselves. And I, I was definitely one of those kids uh, coming into her junior <laughs> class that was getting their mind blown when she was just dropping <laughs> Great Gatsby symbolism, being like, oh, yeah. This is why it's this way, by the way. And we're just like, oh my God, I didn't, that's Mind why explodes. it's got Alzi. Okay, all right. <laughs> no, you're right. Yeah, some people might roll their eyes. And it's true, like, some. I think a lot of what we do, Charles, is maybe going a little too far sometimes just to kind of like spread it very thin with analysis. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I think uh, if you really like something, um, if you're a big fan, you you can only stand to gain like sort of a better enrichment of your enjoyment of a piece of art if you uh, really try to analyze like what's happening there. And, you know, it's, it's maybe it's not so cut and dry. Maybe it can mean a million things, but it's important to really think about it and really think about what's happening in this uh, in this piece of work. I remember distinctly the last time that I got my mind blown by her was also <laughs> through a use of symbolism. Uh, we were reading Poisonwood Bible and there's a pivotal scene in the book where a snake comes out and I didn't give it two thoughts as to the color of the inside of the snake's mouth. Like I, when I was reading, it was such a, a important scene that that detail glossed my mind. But then we were going over it in class. I remember she asked us, she says like, does anyone remember what color the snake's mouth was? And then she explained the color to us and what the symbolism behind it meant. And I was like, oh, that is so good. And that was the last book we read in our class, I want to say. So... Yeah. yeah, even that little detail still remains on my mind. You know, I think uh, I, I think it was when I was in her class when I started watching this show, probably, with uh, Jay, a uh, former and future guest on the podcast, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, this is very formative years for us, Charles. Um, anyway, okay, enough said. Let's toss the mic to Miss McFarlane and see what she thought about this episode. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, this is us from the future like months into the future. We have a lot to talk about and unpack, but we finally got to Ms. McFarland. We got to speak to her today. We did it in a Skype call, so please excuse us for the quality and the sound connection. Uh, it's a little bit faulty right there, but we finally got it done. Yeah, and we thought it was also important to mention that, well, as you may know, Charles and I live in Louisiana. We grew up in Southwest Louisiana, and that's where Ms. McFarland lives. And Southwest Louisiana, as you may know, has been particularly devastated by hurricanes this fall. In fact, if you can believe it, as you listen to this episode, it's still hurricane season for us. Uh, there was Hurricane Zeta that made landfall just last week. But we're finally back. We're so thankful to be putting this episode out. And for the future, we now have something that can alert you to our status updates. We decided to join 2006 and get a Twitter account. That's right. We have a Twitter account 
at Northern Over Pod for the Northern Over Exposure Podcast. So please follow us for any status updates on our current whereabouts and for <laughs> new content that we'll be putting out on there. Yeah. So sorry about this punch in. We're wrapping up right here. Just wanted to say, you know, it's been a little rough these past few months, but it's conversations like these, like the one we had with Miss McFarlane, uh, that give me some hope. So without further ado, let's, uh, let's listen to this conversation, Charles. So are you there, uh, Miss McFarlane? I'm here. Hey. So I thought, <laughs> hey, <laughs> I thought we would start, um, by just kind of asking you, was there anything that stuck out to you in the episode? Anything you'd like to, to mention? Yes. Um, so one thing that really got me, because I was like, oh my gosh, this is so me. Um, when Chris starts teaching and wants to show um, Marilyn the engine. Yes. And, and she doesn't care <laughs> about the engine. Um, I just thought, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, how often do I do that as a teacher? I want to I show every single thing. Yeah. And they don't care. but then just listening to you guys talk about things that you remember from class kind of reassured me okay no maybe i'm okay (laughs) some of it's still yeah maybe some of it's stuck yeah there was a there's a part of our discussion me and charles when we were talking about that that kind of scene and um maybe there's some secret to teaching like how do you get a student interested in in something or is it just kind of does it just come to them I have found, and and look, this is my 25th year teaching, and it's <laughs> taken me a very long time to get to this point. Yeah. <laughs> but I have found that my excitement about mm-hmm. English, about literature, my excitement becomes there. Um, and I think that's why I'm struggling so much right now with virtual, mm-hmm. because I, I can't display my excitement. Yeah. And so they don't really have the buy-in yet. And so I think that's, there are several factors, but I really do think that's one of the key things mm-hmm. is once my students trust me, then they are excited just because, oh, Miss McFarlane is excited about this. It must be good. Yeah. And so they'll buy yeah. into it. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's really interesting. So they trust you as a person of authority. So your excitement and praise for a novel or something of that nature that's contagious like that that's going to spread to the students and uh, that is your strategy to hook them into english yes i really i think that and i've had students kind of verify that that they'll talk to friends in other classes who are reading the same thing and the kids will say well they don't like it but i don't understand why they don't like it so much (laughs) and then when they start talking to their friends they realize that oh it's because you're actually excited about it they're teacher doesn't really care yeah <laughs> and so I think not, not that I'm better or anything but just yeah I think my excitement about what we're doing is contagious definitely so, yeah and I definitely yeah. I, I think I could uh I could uh confirm that I definitely remember I don't know just always feeling excited in your class and and kind of seeing that shine through good 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh so you you've seen the show Kind of when it was running. Mm-hmm. And I think we talked briefly. You, yeah. did, you said you didn't really remember this episode in particular, but were there things about the show watching it this time that kind of uh, reminded you of the of watching it before? Or? Yes. See, I was very young when I watched it. I, I, I want to say I was in college wow. <laughs> when I watched <laughs> it. And so it really kind of did bring stuff back to me. I um, My favorite character was Chris. Oh, and nice. I think, you know, the young 
college me was because he was good looking. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But also just his, he's kind of philosophical and I like that. And Mm -hmm. so that kind of came back and I was like, oh yeah, yeah, I remember this. I like him. Um, I always liked Maggie. Yeah. And this isn't necessarily about the teaching, but in this episode where she's turning 30. Mm -hmm. So I'm like 16 years past that now. (laughs) Whereas, yeah. <laughs> Whereas before, that wouldn't have meant much to me. But now I'm like, oh, yes, I totally get what she's going through. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember turning 30. I remember turning 40. Yeah. And and what a big thing that is. So that was kind of fun for me as a, a 46-year-old to watch. Yeah. Yeah, Charles and I <laughs> were talking about it. Because we're, we're, I'm 29. Charles, you're, are you 28 or 29? 28. Yeah, we're coming close. Oh so, and the show itself, Northern Exposure is 30 years old. So it's kind of this weird, everything is aligning. And yeah, so, you know, yeah, we, it's a big, uh, it's a milestone, I guess. Yes. Yes. It's kind of, I don't know. It's cool to, it's cool to go back and watch it again as, you know, just with a different set of eyes. Yeah. I found that that's, Oftentimes, something that's really useful, uh, particularly whenever you're reading a, a novel that you enjoyed whenever you were a teenager, I think rereading it whenever you are in your, I don't know what to call the 20s, your mid-adult life, your, <laughs> your quarter your life, life or something, post-adolescent life, early adult, but mm. early adult. The fun it, years. I have a book that I do that with. I do that with uh, Catcher in the Rye, where I would revisit it every couple of years. And I oscillate between thinking like this is an amazing piece of literature to thinking like this is hot garbage. J.D. Salinger is nothing. And then like oscillating right back to be like, no, 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 no. Hang on, hang on. He's amazing. This guy is brilliant uh, doing that. And I think that's really interesting that you're doing that with Northern Exposure where you're you're going through probably not with the, you know, the the gamut, which I'm experiencing. But you're seeing through new lenses like you were talking about how the show can just change so much whenever you just get older. Mm -hmm. Yes. And and I see that with novels, too, Uh, things that we that I teach just my age makes it different than what my students see. And I'll often tell them, go back and reread this when you're older. Yeah. Um, you'll have a completely different perspective. Um, and I don't know that they do that, but I hope so. Cause that ha- every year I find something new in a novel just because my perspective is changing. Have you ever actually changed um, your interpretation of a novel from the beginning of when you were teaching to now? Absolutely. A wow. uh, perfect example is Othello. Um, and, I, and I know I did Othello with Lee's group yeah. because I remember Brick. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so in... <laughs> uh, Brick made me cry. Oh, <laughs> uh, in, uh, in, in Miss McFarland's class, we got to paint one of the bricks on the wall. And uh, you could sort of, you know, the, the tradition was you kind of put your a favorite quote or, I don't know, make a, make a beautiful piece of art on this like... Uh, I would you describe it as like six by 12? Maybe it's like a rectangular brick um, inches uh-huh. is what I mean. But mine was the quote from Othello. I think it's, uh, if after every storm came such calms, may the winds blow until they have wakened death. Yes, I'm so proud. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it definitely was a, that was a huge, it really resonated with me, obviously enough to write it on the brick and to remember it today. Yes, but that, that play um, my opinion of Othello has changed over the years. Mm-hmm. Like I, I viewed him at first as just, oh, I felt so sorry for him. Poor thing. Um, Iago really just duped him. And and over the years, and I think it's just my age and just 
life experiences, I don't feel sorry for him. What an idiot. What a jerk. (laughs) You know, come on, use your brain. What are you doing? And so my students oftentimes are, oh, poor guy. I'm like, what do you mean, poor guy? Look at what he just did. Yeah. (laughs) That's one example that, yes, my my perspective has changed um, quite a bit. Wow, yeah. With just different things in novels. Oh, my God. That's so interesting. Yeah. Can we ask uh, what actually made you want to go into the field of teaching? Like what inspired you to become a teacher? Um, Okay. A couple of things. Um, Some of them are going to sound silly. Um, When I was a kid, when I played pretend, I played like I was a teacher. (laughs) Um, And so that I think my my mom said she knew then I was going to be a teacher. Um, I can remember watching my teachers and critiquing in my mind, like, oh, one day I'm going to do that. Oh, I would never do that. And so that kind of stayed with me. And, you know, I tried to not go into teaching because I thought, oh, I'm not going to make any money. But my senior year, I had an amazing English teacher. Her name was Susan Key. And because of her, I absolutely fell in love with English and decided, uh, you know what? No, this is, I want to be her. And this, a lot of people think I'm silly here, but I feel like really I was kind of called by God to, this is my role. This is my, this is my mission field. And so that's where I am. My oldest daughter will graduate in December, also in education. And so I tell her that all the time too. You're kind of, this is your mission. You're called. So, um, but one of the really cool things when I left Barb and went to Sulphur, um, I am in Miss Key's classroom. And so it just kind of (laughs) <laughs> kind of came full circle. Wow. Like, oh my gosh, I'm right back where it started. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's, That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and actually that first year at Sulphur, I taught Miss Key's grandson. Oh my gosh. Such so a small really world and just circle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. got it. That's way too coincidental at that point. It's gotta be. Yeah, <laughs> it's gotta be destiny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. <laughs> and yeah, I think it's okay. obviously true. In your case, and even in Charles and Charles and I, like your high school teachers or your teachers can have a profound effect on you. And just like remembering, it never really goes away. You know, it's kind of weird to yeah. think about all the people who come and go in your life, but your teachers uh, got, got to show some love to the teachers, you know? Yeah. Well, speaking yeah. on, uh, speaking on teaching, what do you recall being your highest highs of being a teacher and your lowest lows? Um. So my highest highs, and there's not like just one thing in particular, but my highest highs are when my students come back with successes and tell me, you know, I was able to do this because of something from your class. Um, Seriously, hearing from you guys was a huge high um, that I really needed at the time because in the, you know, I haven't taught in eight months. So to hear from you guys that you even remembered me um, was huge um and then like i said to hear y'all talking about things that you do remember that that's the highest high for for me at least as a teacher is that that my students do remember things from class and and it's you know made up a little bit of who they are definitely okay Um, (laughs) lowest lows lowest lows um really and I could go real political and not going to go real political, but you know, it's low very <laughs> often that teachers are treated as the scum, you know, we're yeah. kind of dumped on all the time and that hurts. Mm-hmm. Um, but really the lowest lows ever um, I've had students 
not while I'm teaching them, but after I've taught them, um, who have committed suicide. And that, I think that's the lowest low I experience as a teacher is that, oh my gosh, I wasn't able to help them. Yeah. You know, because I feel that that responsibility of going in and helping and and I couldn't. That's really the lowest. So you felt that you you weren't just like a teacher for English. Like that's not it's not limited to just that small of a scope. You feel like you're actually their teacher through their adolescence. You're supposed to guide them through. So, you know, you love it whenever they come back and they made it through that difficult passage. It'd be like, I came out the other end, uh, I'll, you know, your guidance helped me become this person. And then, yeah, I, that's, I mean, I can't even imagine how incredibly sad that is to hear that, like, somebody couldn't make it out of there. Um, Right. And having to, like, read that, you know, years down the road and having to be like, I remember him. Like, I remember him or her exactly what they did and how it ended up like this is tragic. Very, very. And it it just kind of stays with you. Yeah. Um. Okay, well, not to to try to pivot. Uh, let's see. Uh, so let's end it on a happy one. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we often ask, or we try to ask our guests on the show um, a question. Maybe this can fit to your situation, or maybe not. But thinking like Joel Fleischman, have you ever been in a situation where you were stuck, or you didn't want to be in a place, and in the end, you hopefully gained something or found yourself changed for the better? Okay. And I, and I thought about that and I thought about that. And to be honest, like even, even the young me, when I was watching Northern Exposure knew that he was supposed to be there, you know, it, it, it wasn't a question. I I got that. Um, I really, I think I've always felt like where I am is where I'm supposed to be. I think that's just like a good, uh, like way to go through the world, you know, just to, yeah. uh, it, you know, it's, it's not necessarily like you shouldn't think of it as a, as things around you are like robbing you of your power, but that this is where you are and you have the power to do what you need to do. Maybe. Right. Right. And I think like, cause one thing I was going to say was, you know, this, this past eight month period where I'm not teaching. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's, I'm, I'm not where I'm supposed to be, but then I put myself into a different type of school situation where I was still there and kind of realized no, that that was what I was supposed to do at this time. So I really, I cannot think of a time that I just yeah. really felt I should be somewhere else. I've, I've, yeah, I'm, I'm very comfortable in where I've been. And that may be because I'm 46 and just know that now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're wiser. I, I don't think you understand how, uh, how mentally healthy that is. <laughs> like, no, that is a great answer. Yeah. Oh no, I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> No, um, my, in fact, our priest gave a sermon the other day and said, you know, his whole thing was bloom where you're planted. And I mm. don't know, I'm just kind of sticking with that. Um, my mantra for the past six months comes from um, the book of Esther. And it's perhaps you were made for such a time as this. And I'm just kind of holding on to that. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Well, Miss McFarland, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and I'm just so excited to be talking to you right now. And, um, Oh, I'm loving this. <laughs> yeah. We'll keep talking after we stop recording, but, um, thank you okay, again. Thank y'all so much for inviting me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Charles, that was season four, episode one. We made it. Uh, next episode is the second episode of season four. It's called midnight sun. You got any predictions? 
Uh, does someone from the Nordic countries come visit Sicily? Because I hear that they experience like daylight and um, nighttime much more differently than we do. So I'm going to guess it has something to do with that. Like somebody being temporally displaced. Yeah, I think you're pretty close here, Charles. Uh, that is very true. Yeah, there's like that phenomenon that happens at these uh, upper latitudes. Um, okay, well, I won't spoil it. Let's talk about it next week. Charles, thanks for podding. All right, talk to you next week, Lee. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson, who I should mention has just released some new music. You can hear it wherever you listen to music. Just look for the artist Tom Yanks. The album is called Bloom the Grinds. Thanks to Laser Kitties for our podcast artwork, and a very special thanks to Mrs. McFarlane and to all the teachers. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter, and we've got that new Patreon at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.